Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vernon Williams. Dr. Williams is Director of Sports Neurology and Pain Management at the Sports Concussion Institute in Marina del Rey, near Los Angeles, California. The NFL's Research Committee on Concussions, published in the January 2005 edition of the journal Neurosurgery, that it is safe to allow players who sustain concussions to return to the same game. Dr. Williams, any thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, this is a fairly controversial statement, and there's been a lot of information regarding that particular statement and that issue in the press over the, over the last few months, particularly. But when we talk about return-to-play guidelines, I think the best thing that can be said is that there are a variety of different guidelines out there. Most of them have to do with consensus opinion as opposed to a specific scientific assessment that is, that is proven that one guideline is, is better than another. But in general, I think that return to play needs to be informed by a few things. Number one is that I don't think anyone, be it NFL or other guidelines, more or less conservative, I don't think anyone would recommend return to play if a player is still having symptoms. If they're still expressing uh, symptoms of headache or nausea or difficulty with coordination or any neurologic symptom whatsoever, I don't think any guideline would endorse return to play. So that's, that's, I think, the absolute most important thing. Beyond that, there are a couple of possibilities. And there are some guidelines that say if symptoms resolve completely within 15 minutes, then it's safe for an athlete to return to play in that particular contest, whether it's practice or a game. One of the reasons that that particular recommendation and opinion is being challenged is that there does appear to be some risk of uh, recurrent concussion and some risk of cumulative damage if a patient returns to play or player returns to play prior to complete resolution of the concussion. And there is growing or emerging evidence that even when clinical symptoms have resolved and the physical examination is completely normal, there may still be some evidence of deficits in neurologic function. If you look at other more subtle and and more sensitive testing of of neurologic function, like neuropsychological tests, then often people will have deficits that last four or five days after resolution of the symptoms clinically in cases where people would have been graded as a grade one concussion. You know, this kind of growing information and emerging information means that the entire science and all of these recommendations are in evolution. And as we get more information, we can better inform players and leagues and teams and family members and coaches and what have you. So my recommendation and the way I I tend to approach this situation is it is on a case-by-case basis. But if the player is having any symptoms, absolutely no return to play. If they have any abnormalities on physical examination, absolutely no return to play. And then beyond that, there's going to be some room to make individual decisions. And the kinds of information that may help inform that decision may have to do with the age of the player. For instance, we know that adolescent brains tend to recover more slowly than adult brains. So a young athlete, I'd be more hesitant to allow to return to play in the same contest than I would an adult. There will be other issues, such as how many concussions has this player suffered in the past? How recent was the most concussion? How severe have the concussions been in the past? 
All of these things, I think, have to be taken into account so that you can make individualized decisions related to, to return to play. Do you ever get pressure from the coaches to maybe ease up on your guidelines a bit and get the, get the player back in the game sooner? Absolutely. And I think this has to do with a bigger, larger issue and a bigger question, and that has to do with kind of the culture of sports, the culture of competition, and, and the kind of gladiator mentality that surrounds sports. I play football. I love football. I love sports in general. And the last thing I would want to do would be to keep someone from participating when it would have been safe for them to participate. On the other hand, as a neurologist, as a neuroscientist, and as a concussion expert, I'm very much aware of the potential risks of participating when you shouldn't participate. So coaches, I don't think that they are necessarily doing it because they have no concern with the health of the athlete. I think that there's, uh, there's part, part of our culture has ingrained in them that, you know, tough guys get out there and play. And because of that, athletes themselves don't want to let the coach down. They don't want to let their teammates down. So that you get pressure not only from the coaches but from the players to allow them to get, get back out and play as quickly as possible. And then in today's culture, we get pressure from parents because parents know, hey, there's going to be a scout at the game next week. <laughs> you know, this is Johnny's big chance. So there is pressure from a variety of fronts, and I think the best way to handle that is to educate everyone involved. Our approach is to educate everyone that we can prior to the season. I think concussion management begins prior to the concussion ever occurring because you have to educate coaches, trainers, parents, teammates, school officials on what concussions are, how we define them, what the the signs and symptoms are and and how they affect people's function and what our best information tells us about the risk of participating when you shouldn't. And when we do that and we have that kind of ongoing relationship with everyone involved, then there's much less of that pressure. Everyone understands why we're making the recommendations we're making, and, and so it makes for a much better scenario. Let's say you've had a patient with a concussion. Enlighten us on the use of neuroimaging. How do you know when to get a scan? Imaging has a role with respect to assessment of concussion, but I don't think that imaging is required in every situation. And the way that I would look at this, and and this has been borne out by study as well, ideally you're going to do a good neurologic examination and take a good history and that kind of thing on the sideline on the field, and certainly if the patient is seen in in clinic, you know, after competition. But diagnostic imaging, I think, is required if there are any abnormalities on neurologic examination. That, I think, is a pretty clear indication for diagnostic imaging. Now, if the person has persistent symptoms, even in the absence of abnormality on neurologic examination, and what I mean by persistent is, let's say I'm seeing the patient in clinic two or three days later and they're still complaining of headache or still complaining of nausea or or what have you, then I think that uh, it's reasonable to do a diagnostic imaging study at that point. If there are certain kinds of signs on physical examination, such as bruising and hematomas, any evidence of skull fracture or anything of that nature, then diagnostic imaging should be done right away. In the emergent phase, right at the time of the injury, then a CT scan is, is the imaging study of choice because it's going to be effective in identifying bleeding or, or fracture or that kind of thing. It can be done quickly. They're more readily available. And so a CT scan would be the study of choice. 
However, I would say that in the subacute phase, when I see patients uh, several days, a week, or more later, and they're having persistent symptoms, then I'm a little more apt to order MRI. It's more sensitive for soft tissue, for subtle abnormalities. And there are certain kinds of MRI imaging that are probably more effective at picking up some of the subtle changes than others. For instance, you can do this diffusion tensor imaging, MRI studies, that's more likely to pick up subtle white matter changes that may not be picked up on traditional MRI. If you have MRI capabilities with with very high gradients, again, those may be more likely to pick up abnormalities of neural tissues than, than other traditional MRIs. So again, CT in the immediate phase, if there's any abnormality on physical examination and if there are dramatic symptoms, if there is loss of consciousness. In the subacute phase, I'm a little bit more apt to move toward MRI with the, the provision that I, there's certain kinds of protocols that I prefer on the MRI in those situations. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vernon Williams. We're discussing the management of concussions. Let's talk about observation. I hear so many different opinions about this. After a concussion, in what kind of circumstances do you want to observe the patient? For how long? Where do you observe them? Do you have to keep them awake? Walk us through that. Yeah, well, observation is key because you want to be vigilant for any evidence of neurologic deterioration. And so particularly in the case of an adolescent who suffered an injury, let's say at a a football game on Friday, and they may not be able to seek medical attention or, or see trainers or coaches or team physicians or what have you until Monday, you want to, to have informed and educated the patient's family members regarding what kinds of things to look out for. You want to educate them that they should be on the lookout for any changes in personality, any development of drowsiness or, or difficulty with arousal, any changes in their neurologic function if they develop weakness in one extremity or the other, weakness in the face, or if they describe numbness or tingling. These kinds of things you, you, you want to educate the family and any other caregivers to be on the lookout for because if they occur, then the person needs immediate medical attention. This issue of periodically reassessing the patient is important as well. And so we will uh, inform and educate family members that if a person had a concussion during a game on Friday, for instance, that, that they should wake the person up every two or three hours overnight just to make sure that they're arousable, that there hasn't been any significant change in neurologic function overnight while the person was sleeping or when no one was around to notice it. So I think, again, this goes to this issue of educating and beginning concussion management prior to the season and prior to the concussion occurring. If you can at least discuss some of those things with everyone involved prior to participation, that helps. And then, of course, if an athlete is injured during participation, you want to reinforce those things. We'll often have our trainers give uh, handouts to the family members so that they have something written, some kind of written document that they can refer to relative to things that they should look uh, look for, things they should be on the lookout for, when they should call uh, EMS or take the person to the emergency room, and, and exactly what to do. What kinds of things can we do as parents, as community members, to try to avoid the situation from even happening? That's a great question. You know, there is a school of thought that you can't prepare the brain 
for a concussion. In other words, you can't exercise the brain in such a way that a person is less likely to get concussion. <laughs> but one of the things that you can do is to try to prevent concussion by educating people in any way you can so that they're less likely to occur. With respect to parents, one of the things that parents can do is to make sure that any team that their child is involved with has coaches, trainers, and or team physicians who have been educated on how to identify a concussion and what to do in the event a concussion occurs. I feel very strongly that having a pre-participation preparedness program, is what we call it with Sports Concussion Institute, is very important because we can then team with the parents and team with the coaches, trainers to educate and and give that kind of information. Well, thank you so much, Vern. Uh, We've been discussing diagnosis and management of concussions. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For your comments and questions, please send emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 